morning, TLC. Happy Easter to you. So glad that you're here this morning. Uh, I want to tell you about a buddy of mine. His name's Drew. Drew grew up outside of Traverse City. Uh, as he was growing up, uh, his family went to church a couple of times, but it wasn't something that they did very often. Usually it had to do with when they visited grandma in Detroit, and uh, grandma would make him get up on Sunday morning and go to church. But he remembers a couple of times throughout elementary where they went off to a Christmas service or maybe an Easter service like today. Drew, uh, growing up in kind of a suburban slash rural town outside of Traverse City, didn't think that there was a whole lot to do for fun. And uh, so basically the de facto way to pass time when Drew was in high school was to get together with a couple of buddies, uh, find some alcohol from one of their parents' stash, and go and get drunk. And uh, Drew said that kind of started around 15, 16 for him, and that's just kind of how school went. His entire high school career seemed like the thing to do, and what he realized, though, is that as he began to drink most weekends and a lot of even weeknights, uh, he started to feel more hopeless, a little less connected, more isolated, uh, lonely. Uh, he said it didn't really matter where, could have been a friend's basement, sometimes they'd just drive out to an empty field, pull the car into an orchard and hang out, and drink, and that was kind of life all throughout high school. Now, he did well enough in school, seized the occasional B so that he could continue to play sports, but school was just something to endure, something to get through, and after he graduated high school, uh, not really sure what he was going to do next. He thought, well, I guess the next thing is to go to college. But really, it was just an excuse to be able to move out of his parents' house and move in with some buddies in an apartment. And that just really allowed him to hit the partying scene even harder, started to feel more isolated, moments of depression, sense of hopelessness, and as though he had no direction, no purpose in life. Uh, Drew began to realize uh, that the old adage is true, right? Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You probably also heard, uh, show me what you practice and I'll show you what you produce. And Drew knew something had to give, but he had no idea how to make anything change, anything shift. So he thought, maybe I should leave TC. So he wound up getting a job out in Colorado at a ski resort. The problem, though, is simply changing your scenery does not change your heart or your life. And so he found himself doing the exact same things that he had been doing in Traverse City, just now in Colorado, even further removed from any social structures, networks, or supports, and continued to find himself more and more falling into a state of hopelessness. But there was one bright spot in those couple of years out there. You see, a friend of a friend introduced him to this great, pretty young lady. He fell in love, moved to be with her, Eventually, they got married, then they had a child, and Drew finally thought, ah, oh, finally, like, I'm going to have some purpose, some meaning, life's going to start to get better, but it didn't. Now, you see, as awesome as a great wife is, as amazing as it is to have children, no human being is able to fill the hole that we find in our hearts. Uh, no human can adequately 
take on the role of God in our lives. And so as much as he hoped that this would kind of be the difference maker, the thing that would begin to change his life, that would begin to, you know, really get him back on the right path, give him a sense of hope, give him a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, he actually felt himself actually going further and further down the rabbit hole. Uh, his family uh, wound up moving uh, to Grand Rapids. His in-laws wanted to go to church. His wife wanted to go to church, and so he thought, fine, we can do that. But uh, for Drew, it was always just about a ritual, right? It's just like this thing that you do because that's what good people do. And the concept of having a relationship with God was completely foreign, like never understood that that might be one of the reasons somebody actually goes to church. So he just thought, okay, I'll start going. Eventually, uh, his family wound up here at TLC. And uh, Drew told me, uh, he was talking to his wife one day, and he's like, you know, uh, I don't hate it. And uh, I might even go uh, on a Sunday when you have to work, even if uh, mom and dad don't go. And uh, that seemed to be a bit of a turning point which takes us up to last Easter, a year ago, this time. Uh, I was preaching about Easter because that's the awesome gift I get to do every Easter. And so I'm talking about the way that God transforms people's lives and how the resurrection is real. And because Jesus bodily rose from the grave, that like that makes a difference and how it's transformed my life. And I even had a, a buddy of mine named Mark who came up and he shared his story of what God had done in his own life and how God had transformed him. And, uh, and I gave the invitation I said, would anybody like to experience that today? Like, do you want to invite Christ in? And do you know what Drew did? Nothing. And the next week, he passed away. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That's terrible. Who would say that for an Easter story? No, Drew's very much alive. I just want to make sure you're listening, okay? Like, um, <laughs> now, everything I said up to that point was true, okay? Drew's a real person. All right, he's actually here today. I want you to hang on to that story. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to John chapter 20. Happy Easter. How about that, huh? Come on. <laughs> John chapter 20. Now, uh, if, if Christianity or church is kind of new to you, let me kind of explain. Oh, yeah, if anybody needs a Bible, you can just raise your hand. Uh, we'll have somebody that can just make sure to get you a Bible. Somebody can help you find it. You can even look it up in the table of contact, contents. It's called the Gospel of John. Uh, John is the person who wrote this uh, um, testimony about Jesus. John was one of Jesus' disciples. So he was one of the 12 that hung out with Jesus uh, during Jesus' ministry. In fact, we think John uh, was quite possibly one of the youngest disciples that Jesus called. Uh, we have no idea exactly how old the disciples were, but the fact that Jesus started his ministry around age 30 means that the disciples all would have been younger. Uh, we actually think uh, a number of them were probably even in their teens when they were first called. John being one of the younger uh, ones, we know that John died in either 92 or 93 AD. We think John was probably kind of mid to late teens when Jesus first called him, and uh, by the time that Jesus ends his ministry by dying on the cross and being raised back to life. John's probably either late teens, early 20s, somewhere in that ballpark. John winds up writing this gospel near the end of his life to record everything that he had been teaching and everything that he had experienced. And so 
He takes the first half of this book and he writes it uh, all about Jesus' three years in ministry. The things that Jesus taught, the things that Jesus did, all these crazy, cool, amazing stories that happened. He even explains how the disciples, the people that were actually following Jesus most closely, hanging out with Jesus every single day, still didn't fully get all of his teaching. Seems like a weird thing to admit, like if you're going to write a story, right? You're like, why don't you make yourself like sound like you got it all together and you got it all figured out? Uh, John writes just what happened, though. And then what John does is he takes the last half, which is what we've been studying here at TLC over the last six or seven weeks. And that last half of his book, he actually focuses on Jesus' last week on earth. It starts in chapter 12. And it goes all the way up through chapter 19, where Jesus is crucified on the cross on Good Friday. That happened two days ago. We celebrated that with a Good Friday service, being reminded that Jesus had died, fully dead, totally dead, wrapped in burial shrouds, cloths, hastily buried in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock eye. Had the privilege of being in East, uh, in, in Easter. I had the privilege of being in Israel uh, just a couple of months ago, and I got to visit a first-century tomb that had been carved out of the side uh, of one of the rocks. There, uh, it's not this really tall entrance like sometimes we see, where there's a stone that's like ten foot tall. It's actually pretty short, uh, probably about four foot. You kind of have to bend down and step over to to get inside of it, and John records that that's exactly what happened with Jesus. They crouched down and put him in the tomb, but they weren't able to do all of the normal preparations. And Jesus is there Friday after he's crucified, dead, and Saturday, what we call Silent Saturday, and then Sunday morning as well until, spoiler alert, Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day, just as he promised, just as he said. Now, uh, I could get into, in fact, we did this a couple of years ago, just kind of talking through uh, all the different theories um, on Jesus' death and resurrection. Because when you look at ancient uh, historical documents, you you have to kind of pay attention to the evidence, okay? Uh, If you come to the text with an understanding that resurrection cannot happen, that it's just physically impossible, scientifically impossible, and you don't believe that uh, there is a God who could actually do miracles, then you're probably going to look for ways to understand what these people write and what they do. Because it's shocking, to be honest, what these crazy, fearful disciples wind up doing the boldness and courage that they have if the resurrection isn't legit real. Now, I don't have time to get into all of the theories, but I just simply want to say this. If you're a skeptic, I'm probably not going to convince you or even try this morning to argue you into faith. Okay, I don't think that that's my job. I don't think it's something that I can do. But I will say this. There are incredibly intelligent academics who have written extensively on the resurrection, and if you'd like to dive into it a little bit more, I'd be happy to recommend a couple of books to you. Come see me afterwards, shoot me an email, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, It's not crazy to believe in. John, he's been writing this entire gospel kind of as if he was in a courtroom, kind of like he's a lawyer who's making a case, he's explaining everything that Jesus has done, 
what Jesus has said, how they don't even quite fully get it, but then when the resurrection happens, like what actually it means, and we get to chapter 20, and John wants to give us four scenes, which is kind of like his final convincing argument. John 20, starting in verse 1, scene 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, uh, which is hilarious. That's actually John, the one who wrote this. That's how he refers to himself. Okay? She comes running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Some of the other gospels tell us that it's not just Mary Magdalene by herself. She's with a couple of other ladies, and they've actually come early in the morning because they couldn't do anything during Passover on Saturday, uh, the Sabbath. And so early on Sunday, they come back to the tomb without even thinking about how they're going to roll the stone away, all right, because the stones were meant to be rolled back and forth, but they were not something that could be done easily. It usually took a couple of strong men or women to be able to do it, and Mary wasn't 100% sure what they were going to do, but they wanted to go back and put some burial spices around Jesus, as was customary, to kind of help when the decaying process was happening so that it wouldn't stink. Mary shows up with a couple of other ladies, and the stone is already rolled away. She must have at least looked in and seen that the body that she was expecting to be there was not there. She runs back to find the disciples. She finds Peter and John, and she's like, they've taken him. I don't know where he's gone. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. <laughs> I love that, like a little jab, like we were both running, but one of us beat the other one. He says, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Now, if you're writing a story and you're trying to convince people that Jesus has done something that science says can't happen, right? It's not like they saw dead people coming back to life all the time. In fact, quite honestly, they'd never seen it except for when Jesus raised Lazarus, which had only happened probably a little while earlier from this. And so if you're going to try to convince people that Jesus was bodily resurrected, you might want to think about some of the things that you write. In fact, it's very interesting that John gives us some of these weird details. Like, why would you even give us these details unless that's actually what you experienced? Well, me and Peter started running, but I beat him. I was there first. Oh, but I didn't go in because I was too afraid. So Peter, he got there after me, and then it says, Peter went right in. And then he says, then I went in. So we keep reading. Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place, separately from the linen. It was as if the body was just gone. It was right where it should have been, but there was no Jesus. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Again, if you're trying to convince people why are you going to give some of these little tidbits of information? Why are you going to tell everybody we still didn't get it? 
Wouldn't you want everybody to think that you knew all along and you understood exactly what Jesus was talking about before you expected it, you planned for it, this was not a surprise? Unless that's actually how it happened. Scene one shows us this. Peter and the beloved disciple, John, race to the tomb. Although the risen Jesus is not seen, they see the evidence of his resurrection and the beloved disciple chooses to believe. Scene two. Verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. So she then follows the disciples back. The disciples then leave and Mary is there, probably with some of the other ladies, and she's crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. You see, Mary doesn't get it yet either. They've taken Jesus. I don't know where they've put him. This is why I'm crying. Now, the fact that she starts having a conversation with angels that are dressed in white, which should not be in there, and that she's not freaking out, another weird little bit of information that John decides to give us, which doesn't make any sense at all unless that's actually what happened. Verse 14, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Again, a lady who spent the last at least probably two years with Jesus, and Jesus is there, and she doesn't recognize him. What's going on? He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Asked the same question, but then he follows it up with another question. Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. I love Mary's boldness. She's like, I don't know where you put him, but you tell me, I'll go get him. I'll take care of this. Jesus said to her, Mary. And when he speaks her name, she realizes that it's Jesus himself that she's talking to. It's almost like the light comes on. His voice speaking her name that she's heard before. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's a term of endearment, a term of respect. She obviously runs up to Jesus at this point and throws her arms around him because Jesus says, Do not hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. If you're John, and you're writing to first century Jews to convince them that Jesus bodily rose from the grave, you're not going to say that a woman was the first person to see the risen Jesus. You see, women didn't have the same uh, 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 rights in a court of law back then. You would never use a woman as a witness. A woman was never called as a witness at this time. And so the fact that John actually tells us that Jesus appears first to a woman, that she becomes the first one to see him, again, makes no sense at all, unless that's actually what happened. Scene two, Mary meets a man who utters her name. She recognizes him to be Jesus. I have seen the Lord, is her report which echoes promises given by Jesus in his farewell. Scene one, they see evidence of the resurrection, but not Jesus. Scene two, Mary sees Jesus. Scene three, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors 
uh, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Again, you see a theme happening here? If you're John, why are you going to say this stuff? Why are you going to tell everybody that you and all the rest of the disciples are so afraid that you're hiding out in a room with the doors locked? And why would you say that Jesus just appeared in the room without walking through the doors? If you're trying to convince people that Jesus bodily rose from the grave, physically, literally, historically rose from the grave, why are you going to say that he just appears in the room with you? I mean, why wouldn't you just say, well, he knocked on the door and we opened it up and he stumbled in and we were all so excited. Why would you say these things unless that's actually how it happened? Look, if they can believe that Jesus bodily rose from the grave, they can also believe that as God, he can make himself enter a room without them opening a door. After Jesus said, peace be with you, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Scene three, the disciples are huddled in the upper room. They not only see evidence of the resurrection, they see Jesus, hear him, and receive the Spirit. Episode builds on episode, and we wonder what more could be expected. Each new scene, it's like he's laying out a little bit more evidence. And it's kind of crazy evidence, right? You're like, bro, like if you're going to like make this thing up, you should have done it a whole lot different. And that brings us to the fourth scene. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, the name Thomas and the name Didymus, uh, which is the Greek, they both just mean twin. So we know... Homeboy had a twin, all right? So Tommy and Timmy, I don't know who his twin was, but Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. In other words, he's not there at the tomb with Peter and John, all right? He's not there when Jesus appears to Mary. He's not there later that night on that first Easter Sunday in the upper room when Jesus appears. I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he was out getting some supplies. Maybe he was hanging with somebody. I don't know, but he wasn't there, all right? So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side where he was stabbed, I will not believe. You've probably heard the term doubting Thomas. Well, this is where that comes from. Thomas isn't there, and he's kind of intended to be a model for us. You see, they've seen evidence. They've seen Jesus. They've actually been with him, touched him. In fact, one of the other Gospels tells us that they have already eaten a meal with him, like ghosts don't eat meals. Okay? Only humans eat meals. And Thomas is like, yeah, but I haven't seen him. And until I, until I have proof, I'm still going to be a skeptic. These are homeboys, like, ten best friends that he's been hanging with for the last three years. Like, every day. And he's like, no, 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 I need to see. I need proof. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
Which I love that Jesus says that because, like, quite honestly, that's a great opening line when you just magically appear, okay? <laughs> All right? Like, if, if, I'm, if I'm in, like, a room that's got locked doors and somebody just appears, like, I hope they say, peace be with because I'm freaking out. Like, I'm like, what is? So, Jesus is kind. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Scene four, the final scene. We meet Thomas, a man no different from us. He is a man for whom faith will only be a reality when the concrete evidence of resurrection is provided to him. He possesses no experience at an empty tomb, nor has he heard or seen Jesus. Thus, faith seems for him daunting and impossible. Thomas becomes a template for us who read the story of Jesus from a distance. We hear the report, we read John's gospel, and at once, you and I are challenged to believe. John actually gives us the conclusion to his gospel, and then goes on to give us a prologue afterwards. But the conclusion is really found in verses 30 and 31, where he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, excuse me, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This has all been written. Everything I'm telling you, even the crazy stuff that doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless it happened, I wrote it all out so that you may believe and by believing have life in his name. And that's what Jesus came for. In fact, John records that for us back in John chapter 10 when he talks about the kind of good shepherd that Jesus is. He says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's talking about the evil one. He says, but I have come that they may have life And life to the full. That's what a good shepherd does. And Jesus proves that he's capable of actually making that happen by rising back from the dead. Look, I get it. We've never, like, I don't know about you, I've never seen somebody be raised back to life from the dead. It seems a little sketch, to be honest, right? Like, really? Like, for real? Unless you're God. Because outside of you being God, I don't know how else that would happen. And that's exactly what the disciples share. Eyewitness testimonies. And they go from being dudes that are freaked out, afraid after his death, hiding in a room with the doors locked, to all, well, 11 of the 12, John's the only one that we think died of old age, that actually go out in boldness and risk their very lives, 11 of them being tortured to death, for the cause of Christ. You don't get tortured to death for a lie. <laughs> like, eventually you'll give it up. Like, yo, man. And can you imagine getting 12 dudes to say the same thing for like 20 years? Watergate proved that, like, that's impossible, right? You can look at almost any administration and find all kinds of folks being willing to say stuff. And yet, none of them veer from what they said happened. Now, 
C.S. Lewis uh, has a fantastic quote. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. In other words, if the resurrection is true, then it is of utmost importance. And if it is false, it has no importance at all. In fact, you're an idiot for being here this morning. Just straight up, like you're wasting time. The only thing that it can't be is kind of important. There is no other option. It either ought to change everything, or it changes nothing. Uh, Drew was here last Easter, and uh, I told you he didn't take the invitation to accept Christ that morning. Uh, But later that afternoon, uh, I got this Facebook message from him. He said, hey, Torn, I hope you're having a good Easter. I was meaning to talk with you after the service, but we had to leave. The service was great today, and that story about Mark really hit home with me. I have a great wife and a beautiful daughter, but I also have been going through some personal issues, and I have that empty feeling inside. I don't really have a relationship with God, and I don't really know how to build one. I was wondering if you could help me out. So I wrote him back, and I was like, I'd love to, but I'm actually leaving on vacation in the morning, so let me connect you with Mark. And he's like, that'd be awesome. And so Mark and Drew got together, and uh, they went out for coffee, and he's like, hey, I don't know what it means to have a relationship with God, but you guys keep talking about it, and I think that I want that. And uh, so Mark said, he said, what do I do? Mark said, well, you should start reading the Bible, and you should start praying. And Drew's like, uh, what do I read, and where? And Mark's like, hey, awesome. Hey, start reading uh, the Gospel of Luke. He says, and start praying. And, and Drew looked at him and was like, I've never prayed in my life. I don't even know what that means. And Mark said, well, you're talking to me, aren't you? Talk to God the same way. And so that's what Drew started to do. And uh, a week ago, uh, after our two-year birthday party, I was out in the lobby, and Drew walked up to me. And he's like, hey, man, uh, do you remember this time last year? He's like, that's when everything started to change for me. And I was like, yeah, and so I'm praying about it this week. And I'm like, dude, can I tell your story? And uh, now, now Drew is, he's not like an upfront kind of guy. Doesn't like, he's not a public speaker. He's more of an introvert. But he's like, yeah, you, you, you can tell it. And I said, all right, well, could you just write it out for me? Like, like tell me what, it, what it's been like this last year. So I want to read you the text uh, that Drew sent me, if that's okay. This is, uh, this is what Drew sent me. This past Tuesday, he said, uh, when you brought Mark on stage last year, I just remember listening to his story and a lot of the stuff he had struggles with in his life. I was either struggling with it myself at that time or I had in my past. I really wasn't in a good place in life last year at this time. Uh, When I heard Mark share a story of how Jesus changed his life, the biggest thing that stood out to me was that nobody's perfect and Christ will be with you no matter what. It was that morning, for the very first time, I thought that maybe I can have Christ in my life too. I remember going home from church that day, and something in me just told me I had to reach out and learn how to bring God into my life. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't know where to start or what to do. Meeting with Mark that next week was good. We got to know each other, and he gave me a starting point, opening up the word and praying. 
A few weeks later, on the morning I asked Christ to come into my life, I remember I was at church by myself that day. (laughs) You prayed and asked if anyone wanted to ask Christ to come into their life. I raised my hand because even though I was by myself, I didn't feel alone. I felt his presence in me during that prayer. I just knew it was time. You always say we are not at church to do something but to be with someone. That's a little statement that we often say to our leaders, our volunteers. We just say, look, you're not here to do something. You're here to be with someone, right? God himself is present when we gather together, and he wants to interact with you. So that's what he's referring to. He says, uh, you always say we are not at church to do something but to be with someone. And that day I was by myself, but I didn't feel alone. God was with me, and I was with him. Before I started following Christ, life was very scary. I had a wonderful family, but I still felt alone. I was struggling with some issues, and that led me to drinking heavily. I thought it was numbing the pains of my life, but it was actually just making everything worse. After I started following Christ, I just felt like a weight was lifted off me. I wasn't alone anymore. Not only do I have Christ with me now, but I have met a lot of great people from church. I'm in a small group and serving on hospitality. I'm not perfect. I still struggle with issues in life, but I'm not doing it alone anymore, and it just feels so good. I want to be the best father and husband I can be for my family, and I know that's only possible with God's help. Seeing my daughter want to go to church and seeing her worship uh, Jesus makes me realize that I did the right thing by asking Christ to come into my life, because not only is he affecting my life, but he's also guiding hers. He's bringing Adrian and I closer together. We are opening the word together and going to small group together. He's strengthening our marriage. God is doing great things. From where I was a year ago to now is such a drastic change, and I'm so thankful to God. Look, I... (laughs) I can't let you put your fingers in the palms of Jesus or in the side of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that I don't think I've got very convincing proof that his resurrection is real. Because I can't show you Jesus in that way, but I can show you my life and Drew's life and my wife's life, Mark's life, Kelly's life and Celia's life and so many other people in this room. But right now, I'd like to introduce you to Drew because I asked him one question that I wanted him to share with you. Drew, can you come up? So after Drew sent me this text, and uh, when I was done crying, and then I read it to my wife, and she was crying, and uh, I said, Drew, would you mind if uh, I brought you up on stage? And uh, he's like, yes, I would. (laughs) He was not really excited about this moment, but I just said, hey, man, can you just share uh, one way that you think, or just, I guess, a little bit of what God has done in your life this past year? And so... uh, What's Jesus done in your life this past year? Uh, well, before Christ came into my life, I, I often felt that alone feeling. I, mean, I had my wonderful family, but I just still felt empty. Um, when I'm feeling lost now, he gives me hope. Um, he's brought so much community into my life between the two small groups I'm in to uh, the guys I work with. We do Bible study at work. Um, just so many new friends and family, pretty much, and just that great community feeling. All those people just helped me on this new journey that I'm on that is just so wonderful. Um, I mean, life still has its ups and downs, but 
you know, it's so much better not doing it alone anymore, but doing it with Christ. Mm. So. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a hand to Drew. Thank you. Love you, Jeff. We're going to sing a couple more songs. And uh, after this next song, I'm going to come back up and I'm going to give you an invitation. Look, I know what Jesus has done in my own life, and I know how real it is. And I know what he's done in Drew's life, and there's so many other folks here. And I so desperately, genuinely want you to know that too. It's not just some hocus pocus. It's not just something that we talk about. It's not a ritual. It's a real relationship with a God who loves you, who loves you so much he was willing to die on the cross. And he rose back to life to prove that he has the power to transform your life no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've screwed up before. Jesus goes after us. That's the story of the gospel. God doesn't leave us alone. God continues to pursue and come after. And uh, I'm going to put up three letters. And I just want you to think about this as we sing this next song. Uh, Letter A Uh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've invited him into my life and have a genuine growing relationship with him. Letter B, I don't ever intend to follow Jesus. I don't believe that the resurrection is true. Or letter C, I think that at some point in my life, I want to truly give myself to Jesus and invite him in to take over and transform me. I just want you to ask the question, where, where are you at in that today? Where are you at in that today? Allow God to speak. See if there's something God wants to say as we sing this song. And then I'm going to come up and I'm going to give an invitation for anybody that wants to make that decision today and invite Jesus into their life to experience what Drew has experienced, what I have as well. Let's sing. Let's sing.